Welcome to this special episode of Global Impact. I'm your host, Michael Basakiu. Well, today we welcome to the program the American infectious disease expert, Dr. Michael Osterholm. And he is also a member of President-elect Joe Biden's 13-member Transition COVID-19 Advisory Board. And we begin that conversation now, recorded today on December 18th with Dr. Mike Osterholm. Uh, Dr. Ostrom, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on to Global Impact. We salute your service and that of all of your colleagues on the front lines. Thank um, you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Thank you. Now, COVID-19 continues to cause turmoil worldwide. The presidents of France and Slovakia have just tested positive. And just in the past 24 hours, uh, the headlines are that uh, U.S. Vice President Mike Pence has got the COVID vaccine on TV, and U.S. regulators are poised to okay a second vaccine by Moderna. But this week, we saw grim numbers all across. Uh, globally, 75 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 and 1.66 million deaths. Uh, but the U.S. Uh, saw the highest uh, COVID-19 infections and deaths ever reported in a single day on Wednesday, and the most um, COVID-19 hospitalizations the country has seen since the start of the pandemic. So on Wednesday, there were more than 247,000 new cases and more than 113,000 Americans were hospitalized with the virus. And the nation's death toll has now surpassed 310,000. Dr. Osterholm, is the worst still yet to come? And where are we? In the foothills, in the mountains, on the peak, or going down to back to base camp? Well, first of all, we have to understand that as a pandemic, we have really a whole series of what I call many, many epidemics, M-I-N-I-M-A-N-Y epidemics going on by region, by country, and in some cases like the United States, even by states. And so these are all moving forward at the same time. But to summarize, these are the very best of times and the worst of times for the world. It's the best in times that we are now seeing the light at the end of the tunnel for these vaccines. But it's the worst of times in the sense that this is by far uh, the worst that this pandemic has been since its inception uh, late last year. Uh, if you look at the United States, uh, what we're seeing happen right now is in 40 states, the numbers are increasing dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, we're heading into the holiday travel period where we think that those numbers could even surge substantially more. On a global basis, Europe continues to struggle with uh, this virus in a number of countries. Asia is now beginning to see activity it had not seen before, particularly in South Korea and Japan, even countries like Australia, which had done a very highly successful job of, of in a sense, uh, controlling the virus, now seeing new activity. And if you look at the low-income countries, particularly in South America and Africa, we're beginning to see major uh, increases in cases there. So when we look at this whole situation, just think of all of these as forest fires burning in all these different regions of the world. And this coronavirus forest fire is looking for human wood to burn and likely well over 65 to 75% of the world's populations have yet to be infected. So that's the challenge. And unless we get vaccine to these populations as soon as possible, these numbers of cases are only gonna to continue to increase substantially. 
Mm-hmm. And, and doctor, you've been quoted as saying we need to stop swapping air with our neighbors, colleagues and friends. That need, that seems to be a main transmission route here in Canada and elsewhere that there's kind of a patchwork quilt of, of regulations and closures. On the one hand, schools are closed and yet bars and restaurants are opened. Um, and many jurisdictions, including ours, are still going to be allowing small indoor Christmas gatherings. Um, it seems to me this is not where we want to be going into Christmas. It's not. And I just want to point out when we talk about not swapping air, which I, of course, continue to promote because it is the primary means by which this virus is moving from person to person. If we're fortunate enough to live in a community where I can stay at home and work from my home, or I can bubble myself and my family members from others in the community, that works. I'm the first to acknowledge if you're in the workplace, if you have to go to work, you're an essential worker. You don't have that option in many cases of not swapping air unless you can be afforded adequate uh, personal protective equipment. And in many cases that has not happened. So I still Mm -hmm. hold out the fact that if you wanna stop the transmission of this virus, you gotta stop swapping air. What you also have to have is the realization that this problem is real. I mean, I know right here in the United States we have many, many locations where people still challenge the very notion this pandemic is real. Wow. Or if it is real, what is it actually doing to us? I know of many locations that are having holiday parties yet. Uh, our initial data on travel right now for the holidays in North America suggests that it's still going to be a very elevated travel uh, week with uh, the potential to be within 10% of the all-time high for travel for Christmas. Um, That tells me that somehow we're missing the message to the public that this is your COVID Christmas. This is your COVID holiday period. It's not like last year, and it's not going to be like next year, hopefully, with the vaccines. But this year, the ultimate love you can provide your family is not unknowingly taking this virus home to mom and dad or grandpa and grandma whether you just live across the street or whether you live 3,000 miles away. If you yourself have been in contact with others who they themselves have been in contact with others, who they themselves have been in contact with others, you are very possibly bringing the virus into that home on Christmas. And unless you can be bubbled for 10 to 12 days beforehand, which many people can't, again, because of their jobs, they have kids in school, then you have to understand bringing that virus home could be tragic. And I have to tell you, I have so many personal stories, so many horrible situations where at Thanksgiving time, everybody thought I'm not, you know, going to get infected with this virus. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not vulnerable to it. Unknowingly brought the virus home. And now, unfortunately, mom or dad or grandpa and grandma are now dying. Um, that's the challenge we have before us. My goodness. And, and doctor, speaking of those who have perhaps not taken the virus seriously, some have even called it a hoax. Um, if I can, just a, one question, if I may, about the outgoing president, President Trump. Um, research reports out of Columbia University and elsewhere state that his denials and inaction may have cost between 50,000 and 100,000 unnecessary deaths due to COVID-19. Do those numbers seem plausible or is that a proper way to frame it? Yeah, I really can't comment. I don't know. I don't know about this study. And frankly, I would find it difficult to understand how you would come up with that kind of interpretation. But let me just say across the board, there has been denial here in the United States and in many countries 
you know, don't forget right now countries that have had really aggressive programs trying to contain this virus with leaders who have been very outspoken about the need to do so, such as we see in Europe, who are still suffering, you know, major challenges with this virus. So, uh, you know, we surely need a comprehensive public health message that gives people one, the sense of just what can happen and two, how it can happen to them personally and three, what they can do about it to prevent it. And uh, so I think that's the message we have to focus on right now on a global basis. You know, we're, it's us versus a virus. It's not us versus us. And that's, we, that must be the message we continue to put forward. Mm-hmm. Okay. And doctor, for those of us uh, outside of the world looking in, it's hard to believe that the wealthiest nation on the planet ended up with these numbers. Um, Dr. Mike Ryan, the number two at WHO, has struck out a bit at some of the developed countries saying that, um, number one, they had no excuse to claim that uh, they didn't know a virus was coming. I mean, all the indicators were there. But secondly, he's also lashed out a bit at countries for having zero surge capacity. He says that hospitals in developed countries run themselves like low-cost budget carriers, 100% efficiency, but zero surge capacity. What would you say to that? Well, first of all, I have the utmost respect for Dr. Ryan. He's a friend and a colleague, and I I think very highly of him and uh, his willingness to speak out and to speak truth to power. Uh, The first issue is I think we have to understand that what's happening today in the world is not necessarily just about science. It's not at all. Look at the Asian countries who have really worked hard to control this virus. And even where they're having problems, they're in orders of magnitude lower than what we're seeing in the Americas, in Europe, uh, you know, in parts of Asia. Uh, um, and, and I think that that's a really important message is that, and, and by the way, they don't have to be autocratic countries. Look at Australia mm-hmm. and New Zealand. They, they worked hard, that was tough for them, but they did it. And they okay. were able to bring the virus under relative control. So. I don't think their science is better than our science. I think they were just committed to doing it. And I think that's the important message. In terms of the issue of, of preparedness, the world was not prepared for this. And I think that Dr. Ryan's comments are right on the mark. Uh, you know, and as somebody who has been proposing that very same issue as a global priority for years, I, I wrote about this in my 2017 book, Deadliest Enemies. I laid this all out. Don't be caught flat-footed. We are not prepared, and we got caught flat-footed, not prepared. So hopefully, however, this will be the ultimate moment for the world to learn that the, we as humans still are very vulnerable to these infectious agents, and that a microbe that is somewhere in the world today could be everywhere tomorrow, and it could do what's happening right now. And so we do need to have a much uh, different approach to preparedness and stockpiles, and even to the extent to doing the vaccines uh, research that we need so that we can anticipate flu pandemics in the future, more coronaviruses, things like this. Uh, That's gonna be a really important priority as we come out of this pandemic. Okay. And speaking of the vaccines, um, how do we get to the necessarily necessary herd immunity if s- such high percentages of people in the United States um, say they're not going to take uh, the vaccines? And that number is quite high, I understand, more so in minority groups. Well, let's make it very clear. We will get to herd immunity in some way. The challenge is how we'll get there. 
What mm-hmm. we mean by herd immunity is that concept that we in epidemiology have of when will virus transmission in a community slow down? How many reaction rods do you have to put in that virus transmission reaction before you slow it down? And in this case, we estimate that at least 50 to 70% of the population has to be immune, either from natural infection, hopefully that's a durable kind of protection or vaccine. And again, hopefully that's a durable kind of protection. Um, Until you get to that level, transmission pretty uh, much goes on checked. It just keeps going. And the challenge we have is that even after you hit herd immunity of 50 to 70%, it just slows down transmission. It's like the pilot who announces a half an hour out from Kennedy International Airport, you know, we're beginning our descent. Well, you don't land at that moment, still 30 minutes before you Mm -hmm. land. The virus transmission is the same way. Even if we hit 50 to 70%, we'll keep having transmission, it'll just slow down. So when I say we'll get there one way or the other, uh, this virus will keep circulating in the population uh, well into forever, if we don't have ways to prevent its transmission, i.e. vaccines. So we'll get 50 to 70%, but unfortunately it'll be at a terrible price. On the other hand, if we can get vaccination levels up to that level and higher, then we'll slow it down. And as you pointed out, uh, it's not necessarily just 50 to 70% of everybody. It's 50 to 70% of all those who are at risk, particularly for a much more serious illness and a higher rate of transmission, i.e. those from racial disparities, uh, the idea of socioeconomic status and crowded. There, we're gonna have to see the vaccine penetration at the same or higher levels than we see it in everyone else. So we see this often, for example, with measles. We'll have pockets of individuals for you know, whatever reason, whether it be a country of origin or socioeconomic status, don't get vaccinated. And you can have a community, 95% of the population vaccinated. But if that 5% all live together in similar locations geographically, you can see big outbreaks. So we're going to need to really work hard to make sure all of our populations collectively are highly vaccinated, or we will continue to see uh, uh, this terrible disease continue to spread and cause real harm. Indeed, a lot of work to be done. And doctor, um, I, I received quite a few questions from uh, concerned parents. Uh, they're asking, what is the status of vaccine development and projected availability for kids and youth? And what should they do in the meantime? Well, unfortunately, those studies are not completed yet. Uh, for the one vaccine, uh, the Pfizer vaccine, it, uh, it has, does now include 16 and 17 year olds and older. Uh, the Moderna vaccine, initial recommendation for which I believe the FDA will grant emergency use authorization later today, will in fact be for those who are uh, over 18 and older. And so we'll have to see quite where that break is. But the challenge we have is just getting the studies done to look at the vaccine efficacy and safety in younger kids. Those studies are ongoing right now. Uh, We will have data, I believe, you know, in in the months ahead, but at this point we won't have vaccine available for these kids and uh, we need to get this work done as soon as we can. Okay. And um, not only here in Canada, but elsewhere, because of the huge demands on hospitals, we've seen screenings off, elective surgeries, no more doctors, visits, referrals, all off. Are we looking at a tidal wave of um, problems up the road with cancer and other diseases that could have been treated or prevented? 
Yes, I don't even think we have to look up the road. Uh, you know, we already have emerging data on cardiovascular uh, events, uh, strokes, etc., where we're seeing increased uh, deaths in that population from uh, in our populations in the United States, for example, uh, relative to these conditions, indicating that individuals just didn't make it to the hospital. They weren't able to get the same quality care that they may have gotten before because of COVID. 19 cases and the impact that they have on healthcare facilities. So I think absolutely, whether it be cancer and cancer screening, follow-up surgeries, all of these, uh, you, you may very well not be uh, a COVID-19 case in terms of infection, but you will be impacted by COVID-19. And I think that's that will be borne out over time that uh, the, the tragic footprint of COVID-19 was much larger than just those who are directly infected. Okay, and a couple more quick questions, and I know you have to go. Um, Doctor, China and Russia have both developed and approved their own vaccines, and some huge countries such as Indonesia are using the Chinese vaccine. Might there come a day where those two vaccines are used more globally, maybe even in North America? I suspect that will be the case. I, you know, it's hard to comment on these vaccines without seeing the data that supports their uh, efficacy and safety. And so far, much of the data that we have seen for both the Chinese and Russian vaccines have been largely by press release. That's obviously not where you want to evaluate these mm -hmm. vaccines. We all hope that there will be, uh, you know, many additional vaccines coming forward that are safe and effective to help bring that high level of vaccination for the world. So. Uh, you know, we can use all hands on deck right now. And if those vaccines are safe and effective, that's great. But we need the data to be able to understand that. Okay. And, um, you, you know, you're familiar with the term social mobilization, getting people, ordinary folks to <laughs> take the vaccine, participate in the mass vaccination campaign. Would you like to see more constituencies involved? I'm thinking, for example, not only of political leaders getting the jab in the arm on TV, but perhaps Hollywood, uh, people in the arts and culture field, influencers, heads of re religious groups, so that more people do take that vaccine? Well, one of the things that we haven't done to date in any comprehensive manner is understand what we call knowledge, attitudes, and beliefs of the public about these vaccines. You know, we have this terminology, Operation Warp Speed. We, you know, we have this sense of messenger RNA vaccines, brand new, or the new ones, the mm. chimp adeno vaccines. And we've not done any real work to understand what do people believe about these? What's their perceptions? And what do we need to do to tell them the story about why these vaccines are safe and effective and why they should want to take them? So wherever we can involve uh, people from the uh, impacted communities that have credibility, that can speak to complete transparency about what's happened with these vaccines, what do they represent, what are the safety issues, all of those things. I think it's gonna be hard to get what I call that needle the last inch. It's not the last mile, it's the last inch, getting that injection in the arm. And so that to me is the, is the real challenge we have right now. And so we need to involve many different organizations, individuals, and we need to have the community involved. Yeah, and I've got to say, doctor, I even myself, I received so many emails from well-educated friends who have worked in big companies sending me 
information that is basically scare tactics about this vaccine. It does worry one, I must say. Do you, finally, do you see a scenario in the near or not so near future where COVID-19 is totally eradicated or is there a possibility the virus will still mutate and stay a dangerous form? Yeah, you know, I don't think this virus will ever be eradicated any more than all the other infectious diseases, which are what we call vaccine preventable diseases are eradicated. Smallpox was the one exception, and that had some very unusual characteristics about it that made it possible to ultimately eradicate it. I think we'll be living with uh, COVID-19 for as long as my kids' kids are around. And I think that that's the kind of scenario we have to plan for now. But we can sure do a great deal to reduce the impact of this virus infection and make it more of a routine vaccine preventable disease uh, and what we can do about it. So um, this, this virus is now here with us, much like when HIV AIDS evolved in the 1970s into the early 80s and got into humans. You know, while that was not a respiratory transmitted agent, it's still a virus that uh, spread around the world. And as we can see today, we still deal with HIV. Okay. And in closing, your best piece of advice to people, a lot of people around the world listen to Global Impact on how to get through these series of holidays coming up. What would you say to them? Just remember that this is your COVID holiday season. It's not like last year. Hopefully it won't be like next year with vaccines. And the greatest love that you can give your family or friends or colleagues is to in some cases not be with them if in fact you can't bubble or someone in that group can't bubble themselves for at least uh, you know, it's minimum seven to 10 days beforehand uh, so that you can be assured that you're not spreading the virus to them. Uh, the worst thing you wanna know is, is that days after a holiday event you were the one that brought the virus home and now dad or mom or grandpa and grandma are critically ill or dead. Dr. Mike Osterholm, thank you so much uh, for your time. Uh, we salute your service and please stay safe. Thank you very much, Michael. Well, this brings us to the end of this special episode of Global Impact. Again, our thanks to Dr. Michael Osterholm for his impactful comments and insight. And of course, I hope that uh, everyone, everyone takes his advice seriously. And um, like he said, this is um, a kind of COVID Christmas. Um, it won't be anything like last year. And hopefully it will not be anything like next year. So a bit of sacrifice to be made, but he uh, echoes the views of many experts in this field that uh, we see the light uh, at the end of the tunnel. A lot to go through still, but um, uh, we we are uh, nearing the light at the end of the tunnel. On that, uh, again, thank you very much for listening. Please stay safe. Uh, happy holidays. And we will be back soon with another uh, episode of Global Impact. I've been your host, Michael Basakiu. Bye-bye.